Coming then to the end of our series, The Truth uh, About, and uh, last but not least, The Truth About uh, the Second Coming. There is probably more garbage talked about this than almost any other subject in Christendom, or even if they were all put together. And most of the material written about the Second Coming emphasizes human conjecture, spends a lot of time on the things we don't really know, fanning them into flame as if we know them clearly. I want to concentrate this morning on the things that we do know rather than on the things that we don't. Uh, God being sufficient enough to cope with the things that we don't know and our confidence in his goodness uh, sufficient for us to trust him for those things that we do not know. What we do know is that those early disciples stood on the Mount of Olives and they watched Jesus go up into heaven. And as you might imagine, they weren't sure what to do next. You could almost picture them looking around to one another. Now what on earth do we do? And in the midst of their bewilderment, the Bible tells us that an angel appears, a messenger from God, and says, men of Galilee, why? Why are you still looking up into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back. And in those words of Jesus, we have the major final promise of the Bible that's yet to be fulfilled. And we live with the confidence that having seen so many others of God's promises reach their fulfillment, that this one will not be left undone. You cannot imagine God overlooking something. In fact, the Bible tells us that his nature is such that he cannot outstrip or overlook his word. And so his final word, I'm coming back. There's a story of a young curate wanting to wake up uh, a sleepy congregation. I know how he feels. And so midway through his sermon, he decides to launch in at some tangent. I remember the time when I was in the arms of another woman. Strangely enough, everyone in church heard all of those words in that order. It grabbed their attention. And once they were all focused on him, he said, and she, of course, was the wife of my father. And they applauded. The bishop heard about this and thought to himself, what a marvellous way to introduce his next sermon at the cathedral on the following Sunday in front of the Lord Mayor, the town councillors, the civil dignitaries and all the rest. So he began with great self-assurance. I remember the time when I was in the arms of another man's wife. There was a long pause (laughs) while the bishop stammered and um, just for a moment I can't remember whose wife she was. There are a few things worse than people who can't remember the end of the joke. Maybe you live, I don't, but maybe you live with someone who can't remember the end of the joke. There's probably one thing worse than not remembering the end of the joke, and that's living as a Christian and not remembering the end of the story. Living as a Christian and not remembering the end of the story. It's only as we remember how it all ends that we can live with confidence in the present. Firstly then, the second coming is a promise yet to be fulfilled. There are around 250 references in the New Testament about the return of Jesus Christ. 
And they come in all different shapes and sizes, if you like. They come from all different parts of the New Testament, different types of literature that make up those uh, books. It is unambiguous from those writers' point of view that Jesus is coming. And it was taught in all strands of the early church with great anticipation that the day would come when Jesus would return to finish what he began at and with his first coming. And I guess like hell that we looked at last week, if there were only a few references tucked away somewhere in the back of our Bibles, we might be able to ignore it. But no, it's full on for us to trust in and to believe. What will his return be like? Firstly, it will be glorious. He will come on the clouds with power and great glory. It will be very different from the way he came the first time, when he came quietly and unassumingly and vulnerably as a baby in a backwater of the Roman Empire. This time it will be different. He will come in glory. He will come in all the splendor of who he is. Rather than emptying himself to come, the Christmas stories tell us, leaving behind the glory of heaven, this time he'll come bringing that glory with him. And it will be different because those who see him will not be confined to shepherds and wise men, but every eye shall see him. And even those who pierced him, there's a thought. Such a contrast between his second coming and his first coming. It will bring to an end, and that's why the glory of heaven will come. It will bring to an end this earthly history that so dominates our lives. The end will come in earthly terms when he hands over the kingdom back to God the Father. And interestingly enough, it will also be sudden. So you must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Be very wary of anyone who thinks they know when it will happen. Nobody knows when it will happen. Like me, you probably get the Jehovah Witnesses at your door from time to time. One hot sunny morning, I was sitting at home in a rather scruffy pair of shorts and a stretch t-shirt, writing a sermon. And the doorbell goes. And I made the mistake of answering the door. It was a Jehovah Witnesses. They saw me, seeing the way I was dressed and my young, youthful looks, uh, and asked to speak to the man of the house. (laughs) Cheeky monkeys. So I stood on tiptoe and I puffed out my chest. I said, I am the man of the house. They offered me their Watchtower magazine. They thought I needed it to enlighten my life. I said I was happy to accept their Watchtower magazine, providing they could explain to me how having made numerous predictions concerning when the end of the world was going to be, and it not coming to pass, and I looked at her just to make sure she agreed with me that it hadn't actually happened yet, uh, uh, why this magazine was not completely discredited. She was quiet for a moment. She was now shocked. I felt I had the upper hand. She grabbed the copy back and said, your loss, and walked off down the path. (laughs) I I don't think it was the JWs, but I do remember a time when uh, another cult, I think, was predicting the end of the world. At 11.06 on Tuesday, whatever day it was, it was May time, the 15th of May, shall we say, 1982. I remember it well. I was in year two, or year eight, 
uh, if you're in uh, New Money, as it's now called in high school. And 11.06 on the 15th of May, 1982, was right in the middle of Mrs. Roberts' geography lesson. Now, Mrs. Roberts was a dragon. (laughs) And it seemed to me that if the world was going to end, it was the most appropriate lesson for it to happen. So you imagine the tension building as we arrive at school on Tuesday the 15th of May. It's 10.30 and we're let out to what is surely going to be our final playtime. By the time we get into Mrs. Roberts' lesson, there's only 15 minutes to go and we're at fever pitch. Adrenaline flowing, everyone is hyper. Last 15 minutes, am I really going to spend the last 15 minutes in Mrs. Roberts' geography lesson? She starts the lesson, but we're miles away, synchronising our watches, glancing round the room as we're counting down the minutes. 11 o'clock, Mrs. Roberts is still droning on and we're preparing for blast-off. 11.05, one minute to go, I rehearsed my final thoughts. I didn't have a wife, but I had two rabbits. What was going to happen to my rabbits? Ten seconds to go, Mrs. Roberts is still gripped by the rock strata of some distant cliffs. We glance around at each other for one last time, and there's just enough time for a quick glimpse of Debbie, the year two beauty. <laughs> and then it struck, 11.05. Six, we froze, bracing ourselves for a shock, heads down. Nothing happened. Five seconds, nothing happened. Ten seconds, nothing happened. Fifteen seconds, we began to glance, not, our movement, not moving our heads, but glance our eyes around. We, we were still here. Mrs. Roberts was still in full flight. Anxious faces began to soften and turn to smiles. We'd made it. We'd survived. Or so we thought. 11.07. The world as we knew it came to an end as Mrs. Roberts blew her top at the complete lack of interest shown in our lesson. And as it turned out, that judgment was far greater than anything we'd anticipated from this cult. No one will know. Be on your guard with those who spend a lot of time trying to sort it out. No one will know. And the Bible says, don't waste your time trying to sort it out. Get on with living knowing that it's coming. You see, those who are trying to work it out are almost distracted from the real task. They're under a different spirit. It's not for you to know the times or the dates that has been set. But, Jesus leaves this question. When it does happen, when he does come, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? Will we live ready? Always ready. See, there's the story about the ten bridesmaids, isn't it? And uh, five of them took enough oil to last. Five of them didn't. And when it was dark, the five who didn't have enough oil, their oil ran out and they didn't know what to do. They didn't have much choice but to go shopping and they took a risk. And when they had left, the Bible says, the bridegroom came and they missed it. By the time they returned, the doors were already shut. Don't be those whose lamp is only ready to burn for a short while. 
whose faith is all fired up, but only for a moment. We're to be those lamps ready never to go out, whose faith never dies. Will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? May we be a people saying yes. We're committed day in, day out to be people of faith. And I don't know about you, but our spiritual lives and my spiritual life can, can resemble more of a roller coaster than the light always being on. Sometimes it feels like the fire is so hot I'm burning inside. And other times it's so cold that hell's freezing over. Please God, don't come when I'm cold. I want to be on fire when you come. And I don't know when you're coming, so I guess I better be on fire all of the time. Will you be on fire tomorrow, just in case? And perhaps in 55 years' time, just in case. Or 150 years' time, although we'll be in a better place by then. And so he will come suddenly, and it will be powerful, and it will be glorious, and every eye will see him, and he will be bringing history to a close. Now there's something important about him bringing history to a close. You see, God, as we were thinking about last week, is holy and pure and righteous in all his ways. And the Jesus who will come is righteousness himself. And when he comes to bring history to a close, when he comes to bring everything under God's righteous control, there will inevitably be judgment. God cannot bring this world to an end without holding us to account. Even we would recognize that wasn't really fair to anybody. And so there are lots of verses in the Bible about Jesus coming. Uh, For example, uh, Paul writes to Timothy and says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, the one who will judge the living and the dead... So in view of his appearing, and then he goes on to tell Timothy how to behave. Or a verse like this one. Wait till the Lord comes. Why? He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. Jude talks about, see the Lord who is coming with thousands of his holy ones to judge. The inescapable truth of Hebrews 9. A man is destined to die once and to face judgment. And in a sense, we're right to be anxious about that. It shouldn't roll off our tongue in a flippant kind of way. It's when we don't get anxious about these things that I think we probably ought to be worried. In a godly sense, we should be in awe of the coming judgment of God. Even the Christians uh, around the letter of the Hebrews understood that it was a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We used to sing uh, or at least I used to sing songs that kind of push this stuff down uh, your throat. You've got to walk that lonesome valley. Do you know that one? <laughs> Margaret does. She doesn't want to sing it, but she does. Do you know what the next verse is, Margaret? You've got to stand one day in judgment. You've got to stand there by yourself. No one here will stand there for you. And we wonder why the churches were emptying faster than we could, <laughs> faster than we could count. The thought of going anywhere by myself was really scary when you're about seven or eight, and then I've got to stand in judgment all by myself. But there is a sense in which we need to understand something of that. And by the time we get to the end of this morning, we'll understand it in a different context, I hope, from what that song, or the sentiments at least, we're trying to convey. We would be foolish to ignore it, to pretend that it isn't real. 
In fact, Jesus said, whatever you, don't, whatever you do, don't be like the people in Noah's day. These are words of Jesus from Matthew 24. He says, no one knows about the day or hour. There it is again. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Then he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, a whole world that puts its head in its sand and says there is no judgment, there is no coming of the wrath of God. We can live how we like, we can do our own thing. There is no judgment upon us. Jesus says, whatever you do, don't live like that. But to understand it, there is a judgment coming, but secondly, there's a provision already made. A provision already made. You see, the frightening thing about God's judgment is that I don't stand a chance. All those things I thought I'd got away with, All those things I have long forgotten. All those dark sides to me that I put so much energy into making sure you don't see them. And you do the same. So that's fair. All of it laid bare. I don't stand a chance when God's judgment comes. And all of us have every reason here to face God's coming judgment with a dread. And if that was the end of the story, none of us here could argue, I don't think. We couldn't moan or complain. We'd have no grounds for saying, God, that's just not fair. We know only too well how fair it would be for God to hold me to account for the ways that I failed him myself and those he's given me. Think about it for a moment. Look at the mess of our world, the abuse of it, the tragedy within it, the brokenness that characterizes it. Who's responsible for the pig's ear of this world? We are in a collective sense. We all are. And it's impossible to justify why we should not face the consequence of that. How could God bring history to a close and not hold us to account? Yet God's justice is just one side of his character. For God is just and righteous and holy, but he's also love. And in his love he longs with all his heart that you and I would not face the consequences of that judgment. He longs with all his heart that we might experience his mercy and not his judgment. That his final coming may be a day of great joy instead of great dread. So God made provision. Hallelujah. So that we might be spared his judgment. And that's why Jesus came. To rescue me from the coming wrath. And it takes us right to the heart of the gospel. Which is where we've been, do you notice, at each stage through this Truth About series. It all comes back to Jesus. Because Jesus is the truth. He is the life. He is the only way to God. And in Jesus, we find the rescuer, the one who rescues me from God's judgment. The one who's provided for me the cleansing from my sin, the forgiveness that I need, so that I might face his coming, not with dread, but with joy. 
And at the end of Jesus' life, when he died on the cross, and the Bible says he cried out, it is finished, and the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom, separating the people from the Holy of Holies. They couldn't go in because of their sin, but now it had been removed. Sin taken away. God wants you to know today that in Christ, that as a Christian, that you are forgiven and you can face the future with confidence. He wants you to know today that there is no condemnation for you in Christ. My experience is Christians still often feel condemned. We feel guilty about stuff in our lives that is just unresolved. And the thought of God turning up and having to explain to him the stuff that is still in our lives is understandably quite a frightening thought. And many Christians fear his coming. And this is one of the reasons. Because in their lives they know there are things they'd really rather keep their distance from God. The thought of him coming and laying it all bare is understandably quite a disturbing idea. That's why he wants you to know his cleansing now. That's why he wants you to know his forgiveness now, so that you can welcome his coming with joy and not dread. So a question, are you holding on to things in your life that God wants to forgive today? Are you keeping locked inside wrongs and hurts that God wants to heal? And because you know they're there, the thought of God showing up, is quite frankly rather terrifying. He wants to sort those things out now. When I was in junior school, I played football during most playtimes. One lunchtime, the cross came in, I was on the edge of the box, the goal was in my sights, and with majestic grace, struck the ball on the volley, sweet as you would not believe, towards the top right-hand corner of the net, had there been a net. My shot was so powerful, so precise, that the goalie could only watch helplessly as this rocket-propelled ball went past him. With only two minutes before the end of play, we were certain to win. Me, the rest of our team, we were already celebrating. But then more helpless than that goalie, I saw what was about to happen, but knew I could do nothing about it. Have you ever seen a situation happen before it's actually happened? And you know you can't do anything about it? What I saw was the ball. Now long past the goals, showing no signs of slowing down and heading towards the window of Mrs. Price in class three. <laughs> to be honest, such was the power of my shot, she would have needed bulletproof glass to keep that ball out. And then with a crash that brought the whole playground to a standstill, my football joined her classroom. Needless to say, Mrs. Price showed no gratitude for my gift whatsoever or any appreciation for the quality of the goal I had just scored. It was going to feature in Match of the Day's Goal of the Year. I was sent to Head of Infants, another Mrs. Roberts. The only thing good about being sent to Mrs. Roberts was that I hadn't been sent to Mr. Dawkins, the head of junior school. Having listened to Mrs. Roberts' tirade about being completely irresponsible with a football and resisting the urge to explain to her what a great goal it had been, the worst thing happened. She said, I just don't know what to do with you. I'm going to send you to 
Mr. Dawkins. Thank you, Mrs. Roberts, you're so kind. And then I walked the plank across the schoolyard to Mr. Dawkins's office. It's true to say that the urge to tell him how good the goal was had all but vanished by now. Mr. Dawkins listened in his usual unsympathetic way to my tale of explanation. And then he said, this was like Monday or Tuesday, then he said, come to me on Friday at the school assembly and I will deal with you then. It was a lifetime away. What a swine, I thought. Friday. Friday. Yes, Mr. Dawkins, thank you very much. You're so kind. So for four whole days, I had judgment hanging over me. They seemed like the longest days of my entire life. Whatever the punishment was, I was ready for it. If only they'd just tell me and let me get on with it, face it, sort it, move on. But the weight was nearly killing me. Friday eventually came, school assembly. By which time this thing had taken on apocalyptic proportions in my young life. I went to him as requested, and do you know what? He hardly gave me a moment of his attention. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. And then, and then some platitude about just making sure I put the goals somewhere else. And then he dismissed me. I was absolutely livid. I had not ate or slept for a week for fear of what he might do. And then he dismissed it like it was a load of nothing. I remember going home to my dad that night absolutely furious. Why have I sweated all week for him to say, oh, it doesn't matter. And my dad, who was a little bit older than me, just a wincy bit wiser too, said, maybe the weight was your punishment. And suddenly I realised what he was done. Ooh, sly beggar. <laughs> Hope you never do that, Libby Brown, do you? <laughs> sly beggar. I felt like decking him if only I could reach. <laughs> do I think people live in life like that, do you know? the way I did that week, like judgment is hanging over them. We know there are things in our lives that one day we'll have to own up to, things that we have to face, and we think God is like Mr. Dawkins, saving it up for the future, when all that wrong in our lives will come under the hammer of his judgment. And we live each day kind of anxious and fearful because we know that one day, one day that day will come. Let me tell you something. God wants to sort it out right now. God wants to sort it out right now. He wants to get it done and dusted today in your life. He wants it sorted, cleared away, everybody moving on. And how will he sort it? Not by punishing you, but by forgiving you. And forgiveness means it's over. At least in God's terms it does. It's over, it's done, it's finished, it's forgotten, remembered no more. And with it, all the fear of having to face it in the future, gone because it's sorted now. How come Charles Wesley could sing these words? No condemnation now I dread. I tell you, far too many Christians don't feel like that for a nanosecond. He says, Jesus, this is why, Jesus, and all in him is mine. I'm alive in him, my living head, and clothed in his righteousness divine. It's all been sorted. 
I've got this righteous, divine robe on. It's been fixed. I've been cleansed and forgiven. And do you know what that means, says Charles Wesley? Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Some of us would not dream of going boldly into God's throne room because of the stuff in our lives. And we fear his judgment. And today he says, would you get it sorted? Let's sort it out now. There are two types of Christians. There are those who fear facing God because they know what's in their heart. And there are those who can't wait to face him because they know what's in their heart has been forgiven. Which one are you? Talking about Christians. Which one are you? You see, people in the first group often really struggle because they feel weighed down. And a lot of emotional energy gets synced into resolving these, uh, to, to pushing down these unresolved parts of their lives. And I tell you, when they get to heaven, when they get to heaven because they are Christians, God will see them cleansed in the blood of Jesus and won't hold their sin against them. And they will feel like me, having worried all their lives, they will realize they didn't need to have worried at all. You can wait if you like till you stand before God and realize you really are forgiven. Or you can understand it today and receive that truth today and live with confidence for tomorrow. Don't wait until you meet him. Before you really, even as a Christian, before you really know it's been sorted, it's been dealt with. It's over. It's a wonderful thing to allow God's forgiveness to shine on the darkest, murkiest, guiltiest areas of our lives. No thought too vile, no word too harsh, no actions too selfish or contemptible to stop God's forgiveness shining. In pastoral ministry, the greatest change in somebody's life is when they understand that God really has forgiven them. The greatest change is when they understand God has forgiven them. And maybe some of us need to know that afresh this morning, or even for the first time, that if we confess, he really is faithful and just, not only to forgive us, but to cleanse us. So we know that we're clean, and we share that confidence of Mr. Wesley approaching the eternal throne. That's why he came. For there is a promise yet to be and a provision has been made and it's all because there's finally a purpose to be fulfilled. And that's to bring to an end the rule of sin and death that has lorded it over this broken world. We live under the shadow of death, don't we? Crippled and broken by our own accord, an orbit of pain and hurt with the judgment of God understandably at hand. A planet in the shadows. And yet God longs to bring this curse to an end. We're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. And somewhere else it says, because the old ones have gone, have disappeared. This curse-ridden planet over. Isn't that what we long for? You read your newspapers today, and you pick up your Sunday magazine, and you read of the pain and the hardship. We think like this, we feel like Paul, who writes to young Titus of the glorious appearing of our great 
God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. What a change from living in fear of his coming to embracing his coming because you long for the brand new day that that day will bring. You long for the new dawn that that moment will usher in. <coughs> no more mourning or crying or pain. Why, the old order of things has gone. The curse not just broken. We live now with the curse broken. Its power over us is broken, hallelujah. But we want to see it removed. And it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy when the stuff in our lives robs us of longing for this new day that God has for us all. So there is a promise yet to be. And you can go to dinner today absolutely thrilled that a provision's been made. And this week, live every single moment, longing that it might be fulfilled. And every time you pray and by your words and actions in the power of the Spirit, you bring into being that prayer of Jesus that his will might be done on earth just as it is in heaven. It is a sign, a symbol of the new kingdom that's on its way. Hallelujah. The new day that's crouching at the door. Live for it, for his praise and his glory. Let's pray.